Welcome to Magenta Pills. Your dispensary of red, black and white capsules amidst the slow motion collapse of the empire. Hosted by Gregory Zink. Hello everyone, I hope you are well and thank you for coming back. So today what we're going to be doing is a media analysis. And this is because after sifting through the open tabs on my Safari Explorer, I came upon an article that was released in the early summer of this year, and it perfectly demonstrates what I'm going to call low-resolution propaganda. And I'll expand on this as we move forward, but the idea behind it is that it's but one of the thousand little propaganda cuts you will inevitably suffer throughout the course of a news day. Uh, and what makes this especially insidious is that the seeming banality of the article and the innocuous character of both the presentation of the alleged facts and of the actual writer herself all add up to equal a just-below-the-surface style of political manipulation, one that simultaneously could be brushed aside as just a silly little article, but also serves the larger purpose of moving the ball just a few inches down the field, but stands as forward progress nonetheless. And this stands in contrast to what I will call high-definition disinformation. Now this, on the other hand, has been readily apparent over the past week and a half in regards to the Israeli-Palestinian, or rather Israeli-Hamas conflict, where the propaganda goals are very clear and direct. Uh, th there's no misconstruing what they're going for when either Hamas or Benjamin Netanyahu put forward the imagery or the rhetoric that they want presented to the public. And this is regardless of whether we're talking about executed Israeli citizens driving down the highway or a father uh, retrieving his dead toddler from a Gazan pile of rubble that used to be their apartment building. These are all aspects of the larger information war that is undergirding the political war between these two factions. But nonetheless, it's very clear what they're trying to do, and it's very easy for anyone on the opposing side to see how the other is misbehaving. Enter the piece we're about to analyze. Now, I call this low-resolution propaganda, because it's not entirely clear who inserted this into the public consciousness, but also because it is a very poor attempt at political disinformation. But again, therein lie the evil of this little tiny article. If I were making a food analogy of this article, it would be that of a pinch of salt. Let's say you have a bowl of chicken noodle soup in front of you, and you add literally a pinch of salt into it. Now, overall, you might notice a very minute change in the taste of the soup, but you're largely not even going to know it's there. On the other hand, in regards to the HD disinformation, when you don't have the chicken stock in the soup, you're going to very easily notice that it's not there. The pinch of salt may or may not be there, and you can focus really hard on trying to taste it and not specifically taste that little pinch of salt you added. But it is nonetheless there, and you did consume it. Therefore, it is becoming a part of your overall composition. Likewise, this article serves the same purpose. Also with the additional benefit of increasing political polarization, which is ostensibly something that they cite as one of the great evils of the modern day, yet constantly fuel. And lastly, before we get started, I just wanted to note that the link to this article will be placed at the very top of the show notes if anybody wants to follow along with my reading. So the headline of the article is Conservative Voters Less Likely to be Proud to be Canadian, New Survey Suggests. Now this is an article that was written by Nicole Thompson for the Canadian Press. And it was published on June 29th, 2023, at about 9.30 in the morning. And in its link form, it's being presented on CTV News, which, for any of my foreign listeners, is one of the top four most popular news outlets within the country. So, first of all, 
let's talk about Nicole Thompson. This is the journalist, quote unquote, that wrote this piece. And after only a very small investigation into her Twitter X profile, it's not hard to tell which side of the fence this lady sits on. She describes herself as a life and arts reporter at the Canadian Press who covers culture, health, books, and more. And this reveals her notable absence of expertise within the realms of politics and domestic affairs. But nonetheless, uh, she seems to reside in Toronto, Ontario, and after only a brief look at her Twitter timeline, it's not hard to tell what she thinks. Now, I'm not saying in the slightest that every single reporter on the planet needs to be a completely 100% neutral, uh, objective observer of, of reality and to report it exactly as such, but it is interesting that when it comes to an article that seems right off the bat to be anti-conservative, that we find ourselves in a situation where the writer seems to have some sort of a latent bias at minimum and maybe is a willing propagandist at the most. Among some of the tweets that were near the top of her timeline were some sort of review about a documentary that focused on a queer summer camp. Sounds completely horrible in my opinion, but to each his own. An interview that she did with Elliot Page, who is a famous Hollywood uh, transgender individual, but she'll always be Trina from the Trailer Park Boys to me. There is an article she reposted about COVID-19 rapid tests being discontinued in Ontario, and of course uh, that there is a township somewhere in northern Ontario that is banning pride flags on municipal property. So as we can see, she's very invested within the progressive sexual identitarian movement and also has time to spread uh, COVID-19 virus fetishism, despite it being well past its best before date. So overall, it's pretty safe to say that this uh, female journalist is not a uh, flag-waving a uh, populist conservative or a libertarian by any stretch. Uh, in fact, based on her Twitter timeline, it seems like she is a laptop class Torontonian millennial that scratches out a small living uh, churning out propaganda pieces that uh, perfectly complement uh, the, the current thing. And it seems like she's more than willing to uh, donate her words and time into boosting up any sort of cause that she feels is important to her political leanings. But you know what, for the time being, let's give her the benefit of the doubt. And at the end of the article, we'll try and suss out whether she's either a useful idiot for the regime on the one hand, or a willing propagandist with cynical intentions on the other. And as annoying as this might be when you go to read any sort of news article on a website, what I just did here, taking a 5 or 10 minute uh, side road to go and examine what exactly this person is all about, uh, can go a long way into informing how you interpret a given article that you read. So take that extra 5 minutes and click on their name because more often than not, it's very easy to ascertain exactly where this person stands so you get a better glimpse into their potential motivations for writing the piece. And lastly, I wanted to note the uh, Canadian press angle of this. Now, for anyone that doesn't know, the Canadian press is a institution, a media institution that's very similar to the Associated Press. As in, they don't necessarily create news on their own, but what they do is gather up a bunch of different articles from around the country and promote those ones on a national scale. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, the Canadian press is a, quote, uh, membership-based cooperative owned by the majority of daily newspapers in the country. The Canadian Press Member Exchange is the content on the Canadian Press newswires supplied by membership newspapers. 
In a typical year, more than 20,000 stories are sent from the Canadian press to member newspapers. Canadian press has bureaus and correspondents in every major city in Canada with access to news from over 100 daily newspapers and 500 radio and television channels across the country. Its head office is in Toronto with a bureau in Washington, D.C. Most international copy comes from two agencies, the Associated Press and Reuters. End quote. So right there we see the immense potential that the Canadian press has for amplifying and uh, otherwise ignoring different narratives, uh, stories, or events that it prefers to have amplified and those that it wants to de-boost by not even covering it at all. So once again, before we even jump into the article, we have to keep three things in mind. That this is an, an intentionally inflammatory headline directed against uh, the political right in Canada. We have uh, a biased liberal journalist, small L. I, d- I don't necessarily know for sure that she works for the Liberal Party, although if I had to bet, based on her demographics and Twitter timeline, she either votes Liberal or NDP. I'm not even necessarily saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that w- we should know more about who's writing these stories and what their motivations are for writing these stories that we seem, or at least uh, a majority of the population seems to consume as some sort of uh, according to Hoyle truth in the world. So right off the bat, we have the inflammatory title, we have the liberal journalist, and third, we have the publication of this article by the Canadian press, which in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, but when we know that over the past five years, since uh, Trudeau uh, gave them the bailouts, that they've received a ton of public money to stay afloat, and that anything that promotes the idea that the conservatives are bad is good for them because Pierre Polyev, the leader of the conservatives right now, has made it abundantly clear that one of his goals is to defund the CBC and end the media bailouts. So from a purely pragmatic perspective, it would be pretty stupid of the Canadian press to amplify conservative messaging because of the source of their income. So let's keep that in mind as we dig into it. So the article starts off like this, quote, Canadians' pride in their nationality, like most things these days, seems to be divided down partisan line, a new poll suggests. While a strong majority of the 1,512 respondents to the survey by Leger said they were proud to be Canadian, 81% overall, the poll suggests the feeling is less common among conservative supporters than their liberal counterparts. So let's take a look at this to start. So the framing right off the bat is that conservatives are not as patriotic as their liberal counterparts. And again, we're not talking about small C conservatives or small L liberals. They're capitalized in this sense because here in Canada, it's actually called the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party. These are the two parties, the only two parties, that have ever governed Canada at a national level. Here in Canada, we have a handful of parties that actually run in elections and win seats. Uh, We have, of course, the Liberals and the Conservatives. We also have the NDP. We have the Bloc Québécois. And we have the Green Party and the PPC. Now, again, all these parties run candidates in almost every riding in the country, but only a small percentage of these people actually get elected to seats, and then further still, because of their reduced amount of seats in Parliament, they're not actually able to form a government that can govern the entirety of Canada. So historically, right up until right now, uh, we have never seen any party at a federal level, besides the Conservatives and the Liberals, govern the country. So despite the fact that we have all those parties, we still largely function as a duopoly, much in the same way that the, uh, the Republicans and the Democrats in the states govern, or the Tories and the Labour Party govern in Britain. But again, getting back to the article, we see that right off the hop, the intention of the article is trying to say that conservatives are not as patriotic 
and that if you take the totality of Canadians, an overwhelming majority of general Canadians, not necessarily political partisans, 81% of them are very happy and proud to be Canadian, but this is not very common among the Conservative supporters. And it is especially not as common than their liberal counterparts. And the article goes on to say, quote, Experts say that while the results of the survey may be surprising given Conservatives' reputation as a patriotic party, it reflects their malcontent with the direction in which Canada is headed, end quote. So right off the bat, uh, we have an appeal to authority, and I don't know if any of you have been paying attention for the past three years, but the expert class has not been looking especially great these days. But that aside, uh, the the author seems rather surprised at like that the conservatives who are you know uh, stereotypically known to be very patriotic and flag waving, uh, they don't seem to be very happy anymore. More interesting still. Are they actually going to get into the rationale for why this is the case? But let's continue on. The, quote, The poll found 97% of those who listed their voting intentions as liberal said they were very or somewhat proud to be Canadian, as did 87% of NDP-leaning respondents. That number dipped among Conservative voters, just 76% of whom answered in the affirmative. An even smaller proportion of the 30 respondents who said that they vote for the People's Party of Canada, the PPC, said they were proud to be Canadian. Just 45% of them. Okay, so let's stop there for a second. We have uh, some direct party comparisons in these next couple paragraphs. And what they seem to show is that the voters and the supporters of the governing coalition are significantly happier than everyone else. And this is not really some sort of mystery as to what's going on here. I mean, for anyone that is even center to uh, far right, anywhere in that spectrum, I don't see how they can even be the least bit happy about what's been happening in this country over the last eight years, which is how long Justin Trudeau has been serving as our prime minister. On nearly every single file that touches uh, the Canadian governance structure, whether that be the economy Uh, the environment, international relations, uh, housing affordability, day-to-day inflationary issues regarding groceries, every single metric of Canadian life seems to be getting exponentially worse. And for some reason, there is a component of Canadian society that will unwaveringly support these things because it's seemingly just not conservative, not the right. Now, this is something I'll get into in a future episode because I really want to write about how the Canadian left, generally, they don't really have an identity to call their own because a large proportion of what they use to define themselves is being against American conservatism. Now, there's a lot of sources for this sentiment, and it largely revolves around being hesitant to accept the idea that we're just a province of the American empire. There's the fact that despite the, despite the fact they won't ever admit it, almost all their intellectualism comes from American universities. And finally, we have this faux superiority on the Canadian left that likes to big itself up as the moral standard of the planet. Now, I'm not going to take a bunch of time here to discuss that idea. I want to make that into its own episode at some point because I do feel like uh, it's it's a component of Canadian political psychology that needs to be looked at more clearly, uh, not only to understand uh, what our political landscape looks like, but how we can perhaps manipulate their thoughts into doing things that are more favorable for us or at a, at a, at a bare minimum, Just understanding them so you can understand them a bit more and then maybe that helps us live together a bit better or or cooperate just a tad more, anything. But for now, let's get back into the article where it says, quote, Conservatism is often associated with patriotism, right? Said Daniel Balland, director of McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. 
In this case, you don't have that because there is discontent towards the federal government, towards federal policies, and maybe also towards the direction the country is heading. End quote. So uh, for this paragraph, like this Daniel Beland guy who I looked up, he, he doesn't seem to be any sort of activist. He seems to be a legitimate um, political science university type. But uh, nonetheless, th this isn't rocket science, people. I mean, uh, we're trying to figure out why conservatives might be a bit less happy and patriotic right now. Yeah, it's pretty clear why. Uh, they can't really afford their homes anymore. Uh, they're not able to send their children to sports because of the inflationary pressures. Their dollars are becoming more and more worthless. They're being called racists and bigots if they don't automatically sign up for the latest progressive ideal. And they're slowly starting to notice that this elaborate democratic structure that we've been led to believe is the paragon of all that is good and true within the confides of this civic religion, that it might not be as great as it was initially sold, that the social contract might well be a farce, and that despite all your hard work and effort, you will absolutely get nothing for it. Further still, there will be absolutely nothing you can do to change it, and it only seems to be getting worse by the day. And again, just to reiterate from earlier, uh, if you do happen to point out publicly that things seem to be going awry, you will be demonized as the villain, and your opposition only further demonstrates your backwardness, uh, your, your uh, m informal membership with the deplorables, or the Canadian version, the fringe minority. Because when it comes right down to it, don't you just understand that Trudeau and Singh and their coalition government just have your best interests at heart? They're just trying to do everything they can for you, despite the fact that everything seems to be the opposite. That we live in some sort of bizarro world. So, yeah, of course there's going to be discontent towards the federal government that, at, uh, at best, seems to be ambivalent about the working man's concerns, or at worst, actively hostile towards it, as we saw during the trucker convoy protest when Trudeau was more than happy to crush the working man that dared step out of line and start to speak back towards the elite class and the laptop people in Ottawa. But getting back to the article, quote, Across all respondents, 6% said they were not at all proud to be Canadian. But among conservative respondents, the portion was 8%. 12% of those who vote for the separatist bloc Quebecois and 27% of PPC voters said they were not at all proud to be Canadian. Now this is an interesting paragraph because it, it shows a couple things. The first is that um, they're trying to really show that uh, PPC voters, this is uh, Maxime Bernier's People's Party of Canada, who is largely uh, slandered as being a far-right party uh, because they want a few less immigrants in the country and uh, they're against uh, transitioning kids in schools and they want ec economic liberalization across the board. Uh, you know, th this makes you far-right in Canada. And this is juxtaposed against the Bloc Québécois, who are an avowed separatist party in Canada. Um, they are seemingly uh, more patriotic than the far-right, uh, quote-unquote, PPC voters, who uh, were very, very unhappy, more than double the amount of respondents for the PPC than the Bloc Québécois said they were not at all proud to be Canadian. And again, we're probably seeing some pandemic and convoy hangover that's still lingering around because from the outside looking in at the convoy in, in 2022, an overwhelming majority of the people that were involved and went to Ottawa to protest were uh, or could be described as uh, conservative nationalist populists, which is precisely what the PPC is. It's also precisely what the author of this article would find uh, incredibly distasteful at a political level. I mean, to have the dark triad of political evils in Canada, populism, conservatism, and nationalism. You have to understand that up here, uh, those three words are not synonymous with 
a traditional set of political beliefs, but rather the indication that you are a knuckle-dragging mouse breather who doesn't really understand that you need to be post-national, that you need to do socialistic-type policies for your country to make it thrive, that anything that veers off the path of progressive ideals is really just kowtowing to religious extremists of the Christian right, and that you should not be a populist of any stripe because you need to rely on the expert managerial class for everything that goes on in society. You present automatic deference to anybody who presents any modicum of expertise in anything because you should just know that you're not that smart and you need to look up to your better thans for every decision in your life. After all, you are just not qualified to make these decisions. Your elites are. So continuing on with the article, we have, uh, quote, Some people, when they think about, are you proud to be a Canadian, they think about, uh, are you proud of being under the leadership of Justin Trudeau? Are you proud to be under the liberal leadership, Balan said. He said the reasons listed for their pride, or lack thereof, offer a further glimpse into what's going on. Conservative voters were most likely to list Canada's natural beauty and landscape as a reason for their national pride, with 47% of them saying so, and 35% of them said universal health care contributed to their pride. Of the Liberal respondents, 55% said they were proud because of universal health care, as did 53% of New Democrats. But there were limits on how proud universal health care made people, end quote. Okay, so starting with that last point first, uh, again, this is another podcast I'm going to get into at another date because it is such a big topic that I can't get into it at this particular moment. But this topic of Canadian universal health care, which, by the way, is a completely um, inaccurate statement to make about what we call health care in this country. It's more like a reactionary disease management system as opposed to anything that genuinely is about protecting and promoting health at the base level in, in a holistic and uh, preventative way, that, that, that doesn't exist. Um, it's, it's socialized medicine. It's stealing from a lot of different people to make sure that the people who don't care about themselves at all, who don't exercise, who drink alcohol frequently, who have horrible diets, and who contribute very little to the society are given blanket exemptions to continue their destructive and uh, stupid lifestyles at the expense of the, uh, the, the healthy and the responsible. But this is not my point in this particular podcast. Um, in this podcast, it is denoting that universal health care is of particular importance when it comes to the left and how it makes them proud to be Canadian. Now, obviously, it speaks to their leftist ideals that uh, everything in society should be provided for for free, especially if, uh, as some would state, actually, I think most on the left would state that health care is a human right, although, as we've seen over the last few years, that right seems to have limits when it is... Uh, bumps when it bumps up against a person's unwillingness to take a corporate medical injection. But that's, again, not the point here. Again, what they're getting at is that the leftist principles that undergird a lot of Canadian society make the left more proud, whereas the conservatives are more likely to point towards something like the natural beauty and environment, interestingly of Canada, uh, something that, again, the left apparently is uh, willing to sacrifice just about everything in our economic realm to help stabilize and maintain the, uh, the, uh, the climate of the environment, but tellingly uh, have very little interest in actually spending time in it or taking it seriously as a source of national pride, uh, despite the vastness and intrinsic uh, awe-inspiring nature of the Canadian Rockies, the wilderness, our Great Lakes, uh, the coastlines that we have on three different oceans, and uh, the vast expanse of prairies. And of course I could go on, but let's just stop and note for one second the difference in mentality between these two groups, the left and the right. One group 
says that it really appreciates reality. It, it appreciates the real things in this world and how they make you feel in a positive way by interacting with them. By truly appreciating, and this is the key word here, appreciating reality for what it is. Now, on the other hand, we've got the leftists, who their big claim to fame in this situation is proudly exclaiming that they are more than willing, and in fact, they are enthusiastic about using the coercive violence of the state to extract uh, taxation from unwilling participants to fund one of their idealistic programs, i.e. healthcare. So again, overall, this is an interesting thing to note. Again, on the one hand, one side appreciates reality, while the other constructs various fictions that are only accomplished through coercive violence. And I could go on and on, but that's not the point of this podcast. So let's get back to the article itself. 38% of all respondents said the state of our healthcare system was a reason not to be proud to be Canadian. 40% of conservative supporters said the same, as did 37% of liberal and NDP supporters. Now, again, this is interesting because, again, it, it points to the fact that, yeah, the conservatives are obviously not happy about being coerced into paying for something that they feel like they generally don't need or want. But again, it's not far behind that the left is actually disappointed with the Canadian healthcare system. But at the same time, for all three of these parties, it is nearly impossible for them to broach the topic in any given election cycle. Canadian universal healthcare is the third rail. It is akin to a national religion, and it will never be touched in the slightest because anyone who attempts to even tinker with it at the margins will be labeled an American, privatized, capitalist pig that needs to be ousted from power. Back to the article, quote, that points to a nuance in how Canadians think about national pride, said Howard Ramos, chair of the Department of Sociology at Western University. Quote, it's very important to distinguish that when somebody says they're not proud to be Canadian, it doesn't mean that they're not patriotic. It might mean that they see the country moving in a direction that is not the direction they believe is right, Ramos said. End quote. So again, I looked into this Harold Ramos character, uh, Department of uh, Sociology at Western. Uh, he seems to be as pretty straight up, again, just like the... Uh, the gentleman above from the Canadian Institute policy, whatever, uh, he seems to be uh, generally down the middle of the road type of guy, uh, political science university type reporting, you know, stats, reporting polls, and uh, not not seeming to have any kind of particular bias in one direction or the other. So it's, it's pretty nice that uh, for a leftist journalist, she at least included a couple people who are more or less telling the truth when it comes to their findings or at least their beliefs about what is going on in the country. Continuing on with the article, uh, it, it says, quote, People can be patriotic, can feel loyal and devoted to their country without feeling proud to be Canadian, he said. The fact that conservatives in particular are less likely to be proud reflects the isolation they've expressed in recent years, Ramos said. And again, well, th th this is spot on. Uh, I'm going to say not only are conservatives isolated, but they've been uh, marginalized, atomized, uh, demonized, and in particular uh, targeted for uh, public, professional, and personal attacks from prominent leftists who are really trying to push uh, an agenda forward that seems to be at odds with almost everything that regular Canadians like and want and love. So saying that uh, conservatives are isolated is really understating the point. Uh, it, it seems at times to be an all-out attack and at a bare minimum, a a, 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 an effort at collusion to prevent even marginal conservative influence from entering the Canadian governance structure. Moving on in the article, it starts to talk about, uh, let's see, political division. So it says, quote, 20% of conservative voters said such division didn't make them proud to be Canadian, as did 21% of liberals and 18% of NDP. 
Meanwhile, 46% of liberals said the rise in political extremism was a reason not to be proud to be Canadian, as did 29% of conservatives and 36% of New Democrats. While the number of conservatives listing that as a reason is lower than that of the left-leaning respondents, Ramos said it's still a significant chunk and bears noting. So this section is actually quite funny if you think about it. So the expert that this liberal journalist pulled into the article uh, notes that it's especially worth remembering that, you know, the liberals say that they don't like political extremism, yet the liberal journalist who wrote this article not only is is taking pains to show that the conservatives are quote unquote less patriotic, but she also made it a very divisive and inflammatory headline to catch your attention right away, especially catch the left right away so that they can promote this idea that the conservatives are not really Canadians. This is part of their end game is to completely dehumanize anyone on the right who doesn't completely give themselves up for the Canadian ideal or the Canadian way of life. Uh, Complete fictions, by the way. And recall, when they use this kind of language about the Canadian way of life or what's patriotic, they're not talking about classical things as in like nationalism, which they actively despise and hate. They're not talking about a historical connection to the country because as we've seen over the past couple years, they will do anything they can to rip down the past and put up new uh, progressive versions of that in its place. If you want a couple examples of what I'm talking about, we can look at the renaming of schools like Ryerson University. We can look at the statues of Johnny McDonald being pulled down, and we can see even our national anthem, uh, the words being altered to reflect a more uh, progressive and gender-neutral form of expression. But again, I, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because I am going to cover briefly at the end of this uh, episode the uh, five factors that are commonly cited as uh, the five factors of nationalism, and we'll see if uh, if this if what the liberals are really going for is a uh, you know are they really proud to be Canadian based from a nationalistic point of view or is this purely an exercise in raw power? But we need to get through the rest of this article, so let's continue on. Quote. I think it's really important for us to take a moment and look at the discourse that we have as a country, he said. We have time to do course correction. He pointed to the example of Ontario Premier Doug Ford, a progressive conservative, reaching out with an olive branch to Toronto's new mayor-elect, Olivia Chow, who is a former NDP parliamentarian. Ford initially said that Chow leading Canada's most populous city would be an unmitigated disaster. But when she was elected, he walked that back, which Ramos said was an example of the sort of course correction we should all be engaging in. So now, th- th- this is interesting on a few levels. Um, the first of which is that uh, I'm old enough to remember back in the way, way back time of 2019 when uh, Doug Ford, who is allegedly some sort of conservative, I, I don't see it as such. And this is largely to do with his role as premier during the pandemic and him presiding over uh, what could be described as one of the uh, most aggressively draconian vaccination and lockdown campaigns in the Western world. Uh, Recall that as far as far as February of 2022, more than a year after most countries had moved on from a lot of these pandemic policies, Ford was still locking us down at that point. So I'm not sure exactly which variety of conservative uh, steals his pandemic policies from communist China. Um, That's for you to sort out on your own. But this idea that Ford is a conservative in any real sense is, at this point, uh, more than a joke. But that aside, let's get back to the idea. Because I am old enough to remember... Back in the way back time of 2019, when Ford was running his first uh, provincial campaign, he was decried and accused by large segments of our elite class in the media 
and in uh, uh, leftist political circles and universities that he was Canada's Donald Trump, uh, that somehow a progressive conservative that's in the name progressive conservative in Canada was going to install Trumpian style policies and just destroy the Canadian way of life as we've come to know it. Again, I I don't know just how many times you can bear to hear this, but I'm sorry I have to do it again. This is in an inflammatory and dis and, and divisive article that doesn't seem to even recall basic history from a few years ago. That it was the left who was antagonizing even moderate, what can be called uh, conservative in in Canada at least, candidates for office and decry at the same time the American, allegedly American style politics of a very center, I would say center left, (laughs) fake conservative like Doug Ford, calling him a Trumpist and uh, wanting to install Trumpism in Canada. This is completely lost and forgotten by all the people who would have actually made those accusations to begin with. And instead, they're constantly saying, we need to start looking for ways to reach across the aisle, to extend olive branches. A really easy way to do this to start is to not slander every single conservative person as either far-right, a Trumpist, or some manner of American conservative or some sort of danger, some sort of threat to Canada. I mean, it, it couldn't be more simple than this. Uh, if, if you want things to change, the, the best thing you can do to start is to just stop doing the bad thing. The bad thing in this situation is demonizing anybody right of center in Canada. And, and instead, how about just being honest about their policies? But again, we, we can see through precisely what the left is doing with these tactics. This isn't about actually having a good faith conversation. This isn't actually about... Uh, installing the best policies for the country this is this is about the exercise of raw power and this is something that i'll get to at the end of the episode when i kind of do a full wrap analysis of the article in its totality oh and one more glaring thing about this example that the expert brings up that ford went out and extended an olive branch to the leftist ndp mayor of toronto so in his own example it it can't be a situation wherein both sides come together under mutual agreement for mutual benefit, uh, you know, uh, the, the typical win-win type of situation. No, it was a situation he picked out where the right had to go and make the first move and bend the knee to the leftist. Otherwise, it just wasn't going to work. I mean, do you really expect the wife of the patron saint of Canadian socialism Olivia Chow, and again, I'm referring to Jack Layton, the former NDP leader who passed, but do you really expect the wife, the first lady of Canadian socialism to go out of her way to meet with some knuckle dragger like Doug Ford and try and find common ground, a way that they can govern together? Well, of course, that's not going to be the way that they present it. The only way that this works is if the right bends the knee to the left, just the way that they always have and they always will. I mean, there's this old joke, I'm not sure if Michael Malice invented it, but it goes something like, if you want to know what conservatives believe now, look at what the liberals believed 10 years ago. And it it completely shows their political impotence when it comes to actually conserving the past. They don't do that. All they do is slow it down slightly. Uh, If that, in a country, in a progressive socialist country like Canada, they have uh, almost no sway on this file, they might get incremental or in the long run useless goals um, achieved in this front but they they hardly ever turn the tide back in a major way that's just not what happens the progressive and leftist ideals prevail and they move forward and the conservatives are always uh, begrudgingly adopting them along the way but let's move on with the remaining few paragraphs uh, back and again referencing back to both uh, Olivia Chow and uh, Doug Ford, he says, uh, both of them, quote, quote, both of them sat down and looked for common ground. This is the kind of moment where we can, as a country, take a step back and look at one of the reasons that people are not feeling proud. The tone and the alienation and the extremism that might be present on social media or some of our public discourse. Uh, 
The survey from Leger was conducted online between June 23rd and June 25th and was weighted according to age, gender, mother tongue, region, education, and presence of children in the household. The polling industry's professional body, the Canadian Research Insights Council, says online surveys cannot be assigned a margin of error because they do not randomly sample the population. End quote. Okay, so just to wrap up a few kind of loose ends at the end there, despite what many of you may think about political polling more generally, um, and again, I do come from a political science background, so maybe I do have a bit of bias in, the, in this arena, but generally it seems to hold up. Uh, you can look at the Canadian results and predictions from the last four or five years, and you can see that uh, they were almost dead on every time as to what the results were going to be. Uh, I kind of have my own model in this regard. Uh, maybe I'll post up a, a an article that I wrote for uh, Polyquads magazine. Maybe I'll post that on my Magenta Pills substack soon, a, a repost from the 2020 presidential election in the States, where uh, I kind of have my own formula where I mix together what the what what the uh, and again this is a good lesson for this article in particular uh, a trend of the polls not an individual poll but the trend of the polls what the gambling odds are for a given situation and I additionally look at the information gleaned by a company called uh, ASI that's Advanced Symbolics Incorporated they have an AI program called Poly that they let loose on social media to gather up all the information it can about what people are talking about and how that relates to supposed uh, voter tallies. But again, just my point remains that as negative as you may view political polling, there is a market for it, which indicates that it does have some kind of merit attached to it. Otherwise, a lot of corporations, uh, NGOs, political parties, even governments themselves wouldn't even conduct any sort of opinion polling for the general public if it was completely worthless. That being said, it is a completely gameable system where you can make the argument that polls, in fact, influence blue-pilled normies by making them appear to be stronger than they are. Like, for example, if a if the Liberal Party pulls out a poll looking for its favorability and they, behind the scenes, pay that company or pollster to pump up their numbers, make them look a bit better, well then that might have a downstream effect upon the regular person who reads a, uh, an article like this and then says to themselves, oh well the Liberals are pretty popular right now and I like popular things so I'm going to stick with them because everyone else seems to like them. The in-group, out-group preference of things like this, as primitive and Darwinian as they may seem in the biological sense, are very real. And there are a lot of people who will vote simply based upon who they perceive to be the winner or will win, because then they can be a part of that winning team and go around and inflate their sense of status and ego to their fellow hominids that they in fact know what's going on and that's why they picked the right guy they backed the right horse so you know you should probably listen to them but anyways this is besides the point so what are we to make of this article overall firstly is that the author didn't do her due diligence in even reporting the totality of findings within Leger's report I'll link to it in the show notes because she didn't even do that in her article but a glaringly obvious question was not even broached during the entirety of this piece. What precisely is making the Conservatives so unhappy? And more specifically, how does this juxtapose against the leftists who currently occupy power? When we look at the actual results of this survey, broken down by party affiliation, we see that when it comes to what makes Canadians proud, broken down by party, it says that for the Liberals, universal health care, freedom and equality for everyone, and a, uh, and a multicultural state are their top reasons for being proud to be Canadian. Well, the Conservatives, in contrast, say that it is Canada's natural beauty and it is a peace, peaceful and safe society, although this is only 36% of them. 
when it came to what the conservatives seem to like the least about the list, this short list of possible answers, they seem to dislike or like the least multiculturalism and Canada's humanitarian efforts. And for the liberals, the the least in their list of reasons to be proud to be Canadian are hockey and our people, our fellow Canadians, as it says. So these are interesting for a couple of reasons, because it shows that, first of all, uh, liberals overvalue humanitarian efforts and multiculturalism compared to conservatives, and that conservatives, as mentioned earlier in the article, value natural beauty and freedom as their top reasons. Now, more interestingly still are the reasons for not being proud to be Canadian. So again, why were the conservatives so upset? So their top reasons for not being proud to be Canadian were the state of the healthcare system, the drug problem, and the rise of political extremism. This is interesting because when you look at the liberal list for reasons not to be proud, they have a much higher percentage of respondents uh, listing reasons why they are not proud to be Canadian compared to the Conservatives, which would point towards the idea that maybe they are less patriotic. But that's besides the point. When it comes to reasons to not be proud to be Canadian, their list goes as follows. They cite the rise of political extremism, about economic inequalities and poverty, and also the drug problem. So overall, this kind of points towards the idea, to me at least, that conservatives and liberals have overlapping concerns about what is wrong with Canada or the direction Canada is heading, but we view it in completely different ways. For example, I don't think freedom and equality for all means the same thing to conservatives and liberals. For the Liberal Party members, it seems to be that equality of outcome would be their preferred endgame, whereas conservatives would want uh, equality of opportunity. So these are both things that necessarily imply freedom, but one implies the top-down coercive uh, policies of the state to ensure the equality of outcome, as in redistribution of uh, money to make sure that everyone roughly has the same amount, whereas we know the conservatives are more about equality of opportunity, wherein everybody has the same constitutional rights, and it's kind of up to you to go out and utilize what is out there in the world to make your best lot in life. Pursue your own life, liberty, and happiness, but all be treated equally within the system. Likewise, it would be interesting to ask what the respondents thought about political extremism, because I guarantee you that each side is talking about the other. I'm sure that if you dug down deep into it, you would see that the conservatives would likely cite people like Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh and leftist university professors and uh, street-level activists like the noted Antifa members or perhaps even uh, some of these radically demonstrative uh, gender uh, activists that are frequently or seemingly frequently protesting against some manner of uh, exclusion or rights trampling that never seems to result in the genocide they claim it's is going on. But anyways, let's let's wrap this up a little bit. So what can we glean from all this information? First is that, surprise, surprise, people enjoy the raw exercise of power and having their team at the helm. This would perfectly reflect why one side is happier than the other when polled in this particular timeline. Furthermore, it's not that surprising that the winning team if you want to put it that way, enjoy subjecting you to their policies in in an ongoing saga of petty sadism. For example, is inflation a problem for you and your family? Well, too bad, because we're going to force feed you this useless carbon tax in the meantime. Secondly, is that they didn't even supply a realistic set of grievances to choose from within this poll, which exposes this as a piece of low-resolution propaganda that it actually is. Because I guarantee you that if you put the following choices on offer, they would have ranked considerably higher than dissatisfaction with our alleged healthcare system. 
Higher on the conservative grievance list would be crippling inflation, pervasive gender and race indoctrination in public schools, the deep corruption of the federal government, the normalization of criminal drug addicts ruining even small cities, and a score of medical ethics abominations concerning abortion, vaccines, and the rapidly expanding euthanasia program. And this is without even mentioning the seemingly direct influence on our democracy by technocratic globalism. But you have to swallow all that and not complain about this government-subsidized slide into Brave New World. So say you aren't happy about anarcho-tyranny or the liberal fundamentalist state. You are being unpatriotic. And if somehow you do manage to be happy amidst this deterioration, you're catering to their ever-devolving and depraved discretions. So what this all stands to demonstrate is the irreconcilable differences between the political divide in this country. One that serves to clearly illustrate the increasing tendency towards polarization and such radically departing worldviews that national divorce needs to be slowly put on the table. Like in the Scott Adams analogy, we're just watching two different movies here. Our mutually exclusive principles, morality, and vision for the future are the equivalents of oil and vinegar. Yeah, if you shake really hard, you can get them to mix for a while, but they eventually separate. We don't see the world the same way, and we really don't want the other group informing our children, extracting coercive taxation from us, or bossing us around on a day-to-day basis. Hey, maybe both sides are right to reject patriotic sentiment towards an antiquated form of civic political affiliation. One that was created in the 1870s, no less. An era whose inventions we don't utilize to any degree whatsoever in our increasingly postmodern world. Conservatives aren't patriotic enough according to the progressive worldview? My gosh, what a surprise. Let them have it, because they aren't playing by the same long-term game as us. Take a step back from the day-to-day culture wars and reactionism to see that the Trudeau ministry is a clear preface of what they would do if they had their druthers, keeping in mind they still have some very faint restraints on exercising full power, but these are eroding by the hour. So the sooner we ditch these increasingly anachronistic and silly allegiances to a fictitious political community which only serves the go-along-to-get-along approach, the sooner we will have a state of our own that we can truly feel patriotic about. One that enshrines individual liberty, religious faith, free markets, and decentralized authority, but also socially punishes hedonism, degeneracy, inertia, and authoritarianism. So the red pill is that seemingly harmless articles like this are but one tree in the forest. Although judged on its own merits, it could be seen as lackluster and benign, it acts as a small unit of force that makes up a much larger push towards a narrative. The black pill is that this kind of propaganda is becoming all-encompassing and the federal government openly subsidizes it. There is a concerted effort to squeeze out anything right of sender from the public consciousness. The white pill is that we don't need to play this game anymore because we can start to create parallel media institutions and make incremental steps towards a formal independence from the monstrosity of Canadian federalism. And pixelated ambiguity from articles like this show why we will ultimately never be able to cohabitate forever. Thanks for listening and take care for now.
you for patronizing the Magenta Pills podcast. Stay tuned for your next prescription.